Aerosmith by Sinclair Lewis, Chapter 39 With Terry Wicket gone, Martin returned to Phage. He made a false start and did the worst work of his life. He had lost his fierce serenity. He was too conscious of the ordeal of a professional social life. And he could never understand that esoteric phenomenon, the dinner party the painful entertainment of people whom one neither likes nor finds interesting. So long as he had a refuge in talking to Terry, he had not been too irritated by well-dressed non-entities, and for a time he had enjoyed the dramatic game of making nice people accept him. Now he was disturbed by reason. Cliff Clausen showed him how tangled his life had grown. When he had first come to New York, Martin had looked for Cliff, whose boisterousness had been his comfort among Angus Dewar's and Irving Waters's in medical school. Cliff was not to be found, neither at the motor agency for which he had once worked, nor elsewhere on Automobile Row. For fourteen years Martin had not seen him. Then to his laboratory at McGurk was brought a black-and-red card. Clifford L. Clausen. Cliff top-notch guaranteed oil investments. Hyam Block, Butte. Cliff, good old Cliff, the best friend a man ever had. That time he lent me the money to get to Leora. Old Cliff, by golly, I need somebody like him, with Terry out of it and all these tea-hounds around me, exulted Martin. He dashed out and stopped abruptly, staring at a man who was, not softly, remarking to the girl reception clerk. "'Well, sister, you scientific birds certainly do lay on the agony. Never struck a sweller layout than you got here, except in crook investment offices, and I've never seen a nicer cutie than you anywhere. How about a little dinner one of these beauteous evenings? I expect I'll parlez-vous with thou full often now. I'm a great friend of Doc Aerosmith. Fact, I'm a doc myself. Honest.' real sawbones, went to medic school and everything. Ah, here's the boy. Martin had not allowed for the changes of fourteen years. He was dismayed. Cliff Clausen, at forty, was gross. His face was sweaty and puffy with pale flesh. His voice was raw. He fancied checked Norfolk jackets, tight across his swollen shoulders and his beefy hips. He bellowed while he belabored Martin's back. Well, 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 old Mart. Why, you old son of a gun. Why, you old son of a gun. Why, you damn old chicken thief. Say, you skinny little runt. I'm a son of a gun if you look one day older than when I saw you last in Zenith. Martin was aware of the bright leering of the once humble reception clerk. He said, Well, gosh, it certainly is good to see you and hastened to get Cliff into the privacy of his office. "'You look fine,' he lied, when they were safe. "'What you been doing with yourself? Leora and I did our best to look you up when we first came to New York. Uh, do you know about, uh, about her?' "'Yeah, I read about her passing away. Fierce luck. And about your swell work in the West Indies. Where was it? I guess you're a great man now.' famous plague chaser and all that stuff, and world-renowned skiantist. I don't suppose you remember your old friends now. 
oh, don't be a chump. It's, it's, it's fine to see you. Well, I'm glad to observe you haven't got the capitus enlargitus, Mart. Golly, I says to myself, says I, if I blew in and old Mart high-hatted me, I'd just about come nigh unto letting him hear the straight truth, after all the compliments he's been getting from the society dames. I'm glad you've kept your head. I thought about writing you from Butte, been selling some bum oil stock there, and kind of got out quick to save the inspectors the trouble of looking over my books. Well, I thought, I'll just sit down and write the way-faced runt a letter, and make him feel good by telling him how tickled I am over his nice work. But you know how it is. Time kind of slips by. Well, this is excellentus. We'll have a chance to see a whole lot of each other now. I'm going in with a fellow on an investment stunt here in New York. Great pickings, old kid. I'll take you out and show you how to order a real feed one of these days. Well, tell me what you've been doing since you got back from the West Indies. I suppose you're laying your plans to try and get in as the boss or president or whatever they call it of this just-celebrated institute. No, I, uh, well, I shouldn't care much to be director. I prefer sticking to my lab. I, perhaps you'd like to hear about my work on phage. Rejoicing to discover something of which he could talk, Martin sketched his experiments. Cliff spanked his forehead with a spongy hand and shouted, Wait! Say I've got an idea, and you can come right in on it. As I apperceive it, the dear old general public is just beginning to hear about this back. What is it? Bacteriophage junk? Look here. Remember that old scoundrel Benoni Carr that I introduced as a great pharmacologist at the medical banquet? Had Dinden with him last eventide. He's running a sanitarium out on Long Island. Slick idea, too. Practically, he's a bootlegger. Gets a lot of high rollers out there and lets them have all the hooch they want on prescriptions. Absolutely legal and watertight. The parties they throw at that joint. Dames and everything. Believe me, Uncle Cliff is sore-stricken with tootalus bootalus and is going to the car sanitarium for what ails him. But now look. Suppose we got him or somebody to rig up a new kind of cure. Call it phagotherapy. Oh, it takes Uncle Cliff to invent the names that claw in the bounteous dollars. Patients sit in a steam cabinet and eat tablets made of phage, with just a little strychnine to jazz up their hearts. Brand new. Million in it. What you think? Martin was almost feeble. No, I'm afraid I'm against it. Why? Well, I... Honestly, Cliff, if you don't understand it, I don't know how I can explain the scientific attitude to you. You know, that's what Gottlieb used to call it. Scientific attitude. And as I'm a scientist, least I hope I am, I couldn't... Well, to be associated with a thing like that... But you poor louse, don't you suppose I understand the scientific attitude? Gosh, I've seen a dissecting room myself. Why, you poor crab, of course I wouldn't expect you to have your name associated with it. You'd keep in the background and slip us all the dope and get a lot of publicity for phage in general so the Dia people would fall easier and we'd pull all the strong-arm work. But I hope you're joking, Cliff. 
If you weren't joking, I'd tell you that if anybody tried to pull a thing like that, I'd expose them and get them sent to jail, no matter who they were. Well, gosh, if you feel that way about it. Cliff was peering over the fatty pads beneath his eyes. He sounded doubtful. I suppose you have the right to keep other guys from grabbing your own stuff. Well, all right, Mart. Gotta be tolottling. Tell you what you might do, though, if it don't hurt your tender conscience, too. You might invite old Cliff up to the house for dinner to meet the new little wifey that I read about in the society journals. You might happen to remember, old Bean, that there have been times when you were glad enough to let poor fat old Cliff slip you a feed and a place to sleep. Oh, I know. You bet there have. Nobody was ever decenter to me. Nobody. Look, where are you staying? I'll find out from my wife what dates we have ahead and telephone you tomorrow morning. So you let the old woman keep the worksheet for you, huh? Well, I never butt into anybody's business. I'm staying at the Barrington Hotel, room 617. Remember that, 617. And you might try and phone me before 10 tomorrow. Say, that's one grand sweet song of a cutie you got on the door here. What you think? How's chances on dragging her out to feed and shake a hoof with Uncle Cliff? As primly as the oldest, most staid scientist in the Institute, Martin protested, Oh, she belongs to very nice family. I don't think I should try it. Really, I'd rather you didn't. Cliff's gaze was sharp for all its fattiness. With excessive cordiality and excessive applause when Cliff remarked, You better go back to work and put some salt on a couple of bacteria tails. Martin guided him to the reception room, safely past the girl clerk and to the elevator. For a long time, he sat in his office and was thoroughly wretched. He had for years pictured Cliff Clausen as another Terry Wicket. He saw that Cliff was as different from Terry as from Rippleton Holabird. Terry was rough, he was surly, he was colloquial, he despised many fine and gracious things, he offended many fine and gracious people, but these acerbities made up the haircloth robe wherewith he defended a devotion to such holy work as no cowled monk ever knew. But Cliff. I'd do the world a service by killing that man, Martin fretted. Phagotherapy at a yegg sanitarium? I stand him only because I'm too much of a coward to risk his going around saying that in the days of my success I've gone back on my old friends. Success. Puddling at work. Dinners. Talking to idiotic women. Being furious because you weren't invited to the dinner to the Portuguese minister. No, I'll phone Cliff. We can't have him at the house. Over him came remembrance of Cliff's loyalty in the old barren days, and Cliff's joy to share with him every pathetic gain. Why should he understand my feeling about Phage? Was his scheme any worse than plenty of reputable drug firms? How much was I righteously offended, and how much was I sore because he didn't recognize the high social position of the rich Dr. Aerosmith? He gave up the question— went home, explained almost frankly to Joyce what her probable opinion of Cliff would be, and contrived that Cliff should be invited to dinner 
with only the two of them. "'My dear Mart,' said Joyce, "'why do you insult me by hinting that I'm such a snob "'that I'll be offended by racy slang "'and by business ethics very much like those of dear Roger's grandpapa? "'Do you think I've never ventured out of the drawing-room? "'I thought you'd seen me outside it. "'I shall probably like your Claus in person very much indeed.' The day after Martin had invited him to dinner, Cliff telephoned to Joyce, "'This Mrs. Arrowsmith? Well, say, this is old Cliff.' "'I'm afraid I didn't quite catch it.' "'Cliff! Old Cliff! I'm frightfully sorry, but perhaps there's a bad connection?' "'Why, it's Mr. Clawson that's going to feed with you on—' "'Oh, of course. I am so sorry.' "'Well, look, what I wanted to know is—' Is this going to be just a homey grub-grabbing or a real soiree? In other words, honey, shall I dress natural, or do I put on the soup and fish? Oh, I got em. Swallowtail and the whole darn outfit. I... do you mean... Oh, shall you dress for dinner? I think perhaps I would. boy, I'll be there, dolled up like a new saloon. I'll show you folks the cutest little line of jeweled studs you ever laid eyes on. Well, it's been a great pleasure to meet Mart's missus, and we will now close with singing Till We Meet Again, or Au Reservoir. When Martin came home, Joyce faced him with, Sweet, I can't do it. The man must be mad. Really, dear, you just take care of him and let me go to bed. Besides, you two won't want me, and you'll want to talk over old times, and I'd only interfere. And with baby coming in two months now, I ought to go to bed early. Oh, Joy, Cliff would be awfully offended, and he's always been so decent to me, and... and you've often asked me about my cub days. Don't you want, plaintively, to hear about him? Very well, dear. I'll try to be a little sunbeam to him. But I warn you, I shan't be a success. They worked themselves up to a belief that Cliff would be raucous, would drink too much, and slap Joyce on the back. But when he appeared for dinner, he was agonizingly polite and flowery, till he became slightly drunk. When Martin said, "'Damn,' Cliff reproved him with, "'Of course I'm only a hick, but I don't think a lady like the princess here would like you to cuss.' And, well, I never expected a rube like young Mart to marry the real Bonton article. And, Oh, maybe it didn't cost something to furnish this dining room. Oh, not at all. And champagne, eh? Well, you're certainly doing poor old Cliff proud. Your Majesty, just tell your high dingbat to tell his valet to tell my secretary the address of your bootlegger, will you? In his cups, though he severely retained his moral and elegant vocabulary, Cliff chronicled the jest of selling oil wells unprovided with oil, and of escaping before the law closed in. The cleverness of joining churches for the purpose of selling stock to the members, and the edifying experience of assisting Dr. Benoni Carr to capture a rich and senile widow for his sanitarium by promising to provide medical consultation from the spirit world. Joyce was silent through it all, so superbly polite that everyone was wretched. Martin struggled to make a liaison between them, 
and he had no elevating remarks about the strangeness of a man's boasting of his own crookedness. But he was coldly furious when Cliff blundered. You said old Gottlieb was sort of down on his luck now. Yes, he's not very well. Poor old coot. But I guess you've realized by now how foolish you were when you used to fall for him like seven and a half brick. Honestly, Lady Arrowsmith, this kid used to think Pa Gottlieb was the cat's pajamas. Begging your pardon for the slanguageness. What do you mean? said Martin. Oh, I'm on to Gottlieb. Of course, you know as well as I do that he always was a self-advertiser. Getting himself talked about by confiding to the whole Ops Terrera what a strict scientist he was, and putting on a lot of dog, and emitting these wisecracks about philosophy and what fierce guys the regular docs were. But what's worse than... Out in San Diego, I ran on to a fellow that used to be an instructor in botany at Winnemac, and he told me that with all this antibody stuff of his, Gottlieb never gave any credit to... Well, he was some Russian that did most of it before, and Pa Gottlieb stole all his stuff. That in this charge against Gottlieb, there was a hint of truth. That he knew the great God to have been at times ungenerous, merely increased the rage which was clenching Martin's fist in his lap. Three years before, he would have thrown something, but he was an adaptable person. He had yielded to Joyce's training in being quietly instead of noisily disagreeable, and his only comment was, No, I think you're wrong, Cliff. Gottlieb has carried the antibody work way beyond all the others. Before the coffee and liqueurs had come into the drawing-room, Joyce begged at her prettiest, Mr. Clausen, do you mind awfully if I slip up to bed? I'm so frightfully glad to have had the opportunity of meeting one of my husband's oldest friends, but I'm not feeling very well, and I do think I'd be wise to have some rest. Madam the Princess, I noticed you were looking piqued. Oh, well, good night. Martin and Cliff settled in large chairs in the drawing-room and tried to play at being old friends happy in meeting. They did not look at each other. After Cliff had cursed a little and told three sound, smutty stories to show that he had not been spoiled and that he had been elegant only to delight Joyce, he flung, "'Huh, so that is that,' as the Englishers remark. "'Well, I could see your old lady didn't cotton to me. She was just as chummy as an iceberg.' But gosh, I don't mind. She's going to have a kid. And of course women, all of them, get cranky when they're that way. But he hiccuped, looked sage, and bolted his fifth cognac. But what I never could figure out, mind you, I'm not criticizing the old lady. She's as swell as they make them. But what I can't understand is how, after living with Leora, who was the real thing, you can stand a hoity-toity skirt like Joycey. Then Martin broke. The misery of not being able to work, these months since Terry had gone, had gnawed at him. Look here, Cliff. I won't have you discuss my wife. I'm sorry she doesn't please you, but I'm afraid that in this particular matter— Cliff had risen, not too steadily, though his voice and his eyes were resolute. All right. I figured out you were going to high-hat me. Of course I haven't got a rich wife to slip me money. 
I'm just a plain old hobo. I don't belong in a place like this. Not smooth enough to be a butler. You are. All right. I wish you luck. And meanwhile, you can go plumb to hell, my young friend. Martin did not pursue him into the hall. As he sat alone, he groaned, Thank heaven that operation's over. He told himself that Cliff was a crook, a fool, and a fat waster. He told himself that Cliff was a cynic, without wisdom, a drunkard without charm, and a philanthropist who was generous only because it larded his vanity. But these admirable truths did not keep the operation from hurting any more than it would have eased the removal of an appendix to be told that it was a bad appendix, an appendix without delicacy or value. He had loved Cliff, did love him, and always would, but he would never see him again. Never. The impertinence of that flabby blackguard to sneer at Gottlieb, his boorishness. Life was too short for... But hang it, yes, Cliff is a tough, but so am I. He's a crook, but wasn't I a crook to fake my plague figures in St. Hubert? And the worst crook because I got praise for it? He bobbed up to Joyce's room. She was lying in her immense four-poster, reading Peter Whiffle. Darling, it was all rather dreadful, wasn't it? She said. He's gone? Yes, he's gone. I've driven out the best friend I ever had, practically. I let him go, let him go off feeling that he was a rotter and a failure. It would have been decenter to have killed him. Oh, why couldn't you have been simple and jolly with him? You were so confoundedly polite. He was uneasy and unnatural, and showed up worse than he really is. He's no tougher than—he's a lot better than the financiers who cover up their stuff by being suave. Poor devil. I'll bet right now Cliff's tramping in the rain, saying, The one man I ever loved, and tried to do things for, has turned against me. Now he's—now he has a lovely wife. What's the use of ever being decent? he's saying. Why couldn't you be simple and chuck your highfalutin manners for once? See here. You disliked him quite as much as I did, and I will not have you blame it on me. You've grown beyond him. You that are always blaring about facts. Can't you face the fact? For once, at least, it's not my fault. You may perhaps remember, my king of men, that I had the good sense to suggest that I shouldn't appear tonight, not meet him at all. Oh, well, yes. Gosh, but... Oh, I suppose so. Well, anyway, it's over, and that's all there is to it. Darling, I do understand how you feel, but isn't it good it's over? Kiss me good night. But, Martin said to himself, as he sat feeling naked and lost and homeless in the dressing gown of gold dragonflies on black silk which she had bought for him in Paris. But if it had been Leora instead of Joyce, Leora would have known Cliff was a crook, and she'd have accepted it as a fact. Talk about your facing facts. She wouldn't have insisted on sitting as a judge. She wouldn't have said, This is different from me, so it's wrong. She'd have said, this is different from me, so it's interesting. Leora. 
he had a sharp, terrifying vision of her, lying there coffinless, below the mold in a garden on the Penrith Hills. He came out of it to growl. What was it, Cliff said? You're not her husband. You're her butler. You're too smooth. He was right. The whole point is, I'm not allowed to see who I want to. I've been so clever that I've made myself the slave of Joyce and Holy Holabird. He was always going to, but he never did see Cliff Clausen again. Part 2 It happened that both Joyce's and Martin's paternal grandfathers had been named John, and John Arrowsmith they called their son. They did not know it, but a certain John Arrowsmith, mariner of Biddeford, had died in the matter of the Spanish Armada, taking with him five valorous dons. Joyce suffered horribly, and renewed all of Martin's love for her. He did love pitifully this slim, brilliant girl. "'Death's a better game than bridge. You have no partner to help you,' she said, when she was grotesquely stretched on a chair of torture and indignity, when before they would give her the anesthetic, her face was green with agony. John Arrowsmith was straight of back and straight of limb, ten good pounds he weighed at birth, and he was gay of eye when he had ceased to be a raw, wrinkled grub and became a man-child. Joyce worshipped him, and Martin was afraid of him, because he saw that this minuscule aristocrat, this child born to the self-approval of riches, would some day condescend to him. Three months after childbearing, Joyce was more brisk than ever about putting and backhand service and hats and Russian emigres. Part 3 For science, Joyce had great respect and no understanding. Often she asked Martin to explain his work, but when he was glowing, making diagrams with his thumbnail on the tablecloth, she could interrupt him with a gracious, "'Darling, do you mind? Just a second. Plinder, isn't there any more of the sherry? When she turned back to him, though her eyes were kind, his enthusiasm was gone. She came to his laboratory, asked to see his flasks and tubes, and begged him to bully her into understanding, but she never sat back watching for silent hours. Suddenly, in his bogged floundering in the laboratory, he touched solid earth, he blundered into the effect of phage on the mutation of bacterial species. Very beautiful, very delicate, and after plodding months when he had been a sane citizen, an almost good husband, an excellent bridge player, and a rotten workman, he knew again the happiness of high-taught insanity. He wanted to work nights, every night. During his uninspired fumbling, there had been nothing to hold him at the Institute after five, and Joyce had become used to having him flee to her. Now he showed an inconvenient ability to ignore engagements, to snap at delightful guests who asked him to explain all about science, to forget even her and the baby. "'I've got to work evenings,' he said. "'I can't be regular and easy about it when I'm caught by a big experiment.' any more than you could be regular and easy and polite when you were gestating the baby. I know, but, darling, 
You get so nervous when you're working like this. Heavens, I don't care how much you offend people by missing engagements. Well, after all, I wish you wouldn't, but I do know it may be unavoidable. But when you make yourself so drawn and trembly, are you gaining time in the long run? It's just for your own sake. Oh, I have it. Wait, you'll see what a scientist I am. No, I won't explain. Not yet. Joyce had wealth and energy. A week later, flushed, slim, gallant, joyous, she said to him after dinner, I've got a surprise for you. She led him to the unoccupied rooms over the garage, behind their house. In that week, using a score of workmen from the most immaculate and elaborate scientific supply house in the country, she had created for him the best bacteriological laboratory he had ever seen. White tile floor and enameled brick walls, icebox and incubator, glassware and stains and microscope, a perfect constant temperature bath, and a technician, trained in Lister and Rockefeller, who had his bedroom behind the laboratory, and who announced his readiness to serve Dr. Aerosmith day or night. There, sang Joyce, now when you simply must work evenings, you won't have to go clear down to Liberty Street. You can duplicate your cultures, or whatever you call them. If you're bored at dinner, all right, you can slip out here afterward and work as late as ever you want. Is, sweet, is it all right? Have I done it right? I tried so hard. I got the best men I could. While his lips were against hers, he brooded, to have done this for me, and to be so humble. And now, curse it, I'll never be able to get away by myself. She so joyfully demanded his finding some fault, that, to give her the novel pleasure of being meek, he suggested that the centrifuge was inadequate. "'You wait, my man,' she crowed. Two evenings after, when they had returned from the opera, she led him to the cement-floored garage beneath his new laboratory, and in a corner, ready to be set up, was a second-hand but adequate centrifuge, a most adequate centrifuge, the masterpiece of the great firm of Berkeley Saunders. In fact, none other than Gladys, whose dismissal from McGurk for her sluttish ways had stirred Martin and Terry to go out and get bountifully drunk. It was less easy for him this time to be grateful, but he worked at it. Part 4 Through both the Economico-Literary and the Rolls-Royce section of Joyce's set, the rumor panted that there was a new diversion in an exhausted world, going out to Martin's laboratory and watching him work, and being ever so silent and reverent, except perhaps when Joyce murmured, isn't he adorable the way he teaches his darling bacteria to say pretty Polly? Or when Latham Ireland convulsed them by arguing that scientists had no sense of humor. Or Sammy Delembra burst out in his marvelous burlesque of jazz. Oh, Mr. Baxalillus, don't you grin at me. You microbiologic cuss, I'm on to thee. When Mr. Dr. Aerosmith's done looked at the clues, You'll sit in jail a-singin' dem bacteria blues. Joyce's cousin from Georgia sparkled. Mart is so cute with all those little vases of his. 
that I can always get him so mad by telling him the trouble with him is he don't go to church often enough. While Martin sought to concentrate. They flocked from the house to his laboratory only once a week, which was certainly not enough to disturb a resolute man, merely enough to keep him constantly waiting for them. When he sedately tried to explain this and that to Joyce, she said, Did we bother you this evening? But they do admire you so. He remarked, Well, and went to bed. Part 5 R. A. Hopburn, the eminent patent lawyer, as he drove away from the Aerosmith Lanyon mansion, grunted at his wife, I don't mind a host throwing the port at you, if he thinks you're a chump but I do mind his being bored at your daring to express any opinion whatever. Didn't he look silly out in his idiotic laboratory? How the deuce do you suppose Joyce ever came to marry him? I can't imagine. I can only think of one reason. Of course she may— Now please, don't be filthy. Well, anyway, she who might have picked any number of well-bred, agreeable, intelligent chaps, and I mean intelligent— because this Aerosmith person may know all about germs, but he doesn't know a symphony from a savory. I don't think I'm too fussy, but I don't quite see why we should go to a house where the host apparently enjoys flatly contradicting you. Poor devil. I'm really sorry for him. Probably he doesn't even know when he's being rude. No, perhaps. What hurts is to think of old Roger, so gay, so strong, real skull and bones— and to have this abrupt outsider from the tall grass sitting in his chair, failing to appreciate his pole Roger. What Joyce ever saw in him, though he does have nice eyes and such funny strong hands. Part 6. Joyce's busyness was on his nerves. Why she was so busy, it was hard to ascertain. She had an excellent housekeeper, a noble butler, and two nurses for the baby but she often said that she was never allowed to attain her one ambition, to sit and read. Terry had once called her the arranger, and though Martin resented it, when he heard the telephone bell, he groaned, "'Oh, Lord, there's the arranger. Wants me to come to tea with some high-minded hen.' When he sought to explain that he must be free from entanglements, she suggested— are you such a weak, irresolute little man that the only way you can keep concentrated is by running away? Are you afraid of the big men who can do big work and will stop and play? He was likely to turn abusive, particularly as to her definition of big men, and when he became hot and vulgar, she turned grand dame, so that he felt like an impertinent servant and was the more vulgar. He was afraid of her then. He imagined fleeing to Leora, and the two of them, frightened little people, comforting each other and hiding from her in snug corners. But often enough Joyce was his companion, seeking new amusements as surprises for him, and in their son they had a binding pride. He sat watching little John, rejoicing in his strength. It was in early winter after she had royally taken the baby south for a fortnight, that Martin escaped for a week with Terry at Bertie's rest. He found Terry tired and a little surly after months of working absolutely alone. 
he had constructed beside the home cabin a shanty for laboratory, and a rough stable for the horses which he used in the preparation of his sera. Terry did not, as once he would have, flare into the details of his research, and not till evening, when they smoked before the rough fireplace of the cabin, loafing in chairs made of barrels cushioned with elk skin, could Martin coax him into confidences. He had been compelled to give up much of his time to mere housework and the production of the sera which paid his expenses. If you'd only been with me, I could have accomplished something. But his quinine derivative research had gone on solidly, and he did not regret leaving McGurk. He had found it impossible to work with monkeys. They were too expensive and too fragile to stand the Vermont winter. But he had contrived a method of using mice infected with pneumococcus and— Oh, what's the use of my telling you this, Slim? You're not interested, or you'd have been up here at work with me months ago. You've chosen between Joyce and me. All right, but you can't have both. Martin snarled. I'm very sorry I intruded on you, Wicket, and slammed out of the cabin. Stumbling through the snow, blundering in darkness against stumps, he knew the agony of his last hour, the hour of failure. I've lost Terry now, though I won't stand his impertinence. I've lost everybody, and I've never really had Joyce. I'm completely alone, and I can only half work. I'm through. They'll never let me get to work again. Suddenly, without arguing it out, he knew that he was not going to give up. He floundered back to the cabin and burst in, crying, You old grouch! We gotta stick together. Terry was as much moved as he. Neither of them was far from tears. And as they roughly patted each other's shoulders, they growled, Fine pair of fools, scrapping just because we're tired. I will come and work with you, somehow, Martin swore. I'll get a six-month's leave from the Institute and have Joyce stay at some hotel near here or do something. Gee, back to real work. Work. Now tell me, when I come up here, what do you say we... They talked till dawn.